2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, New Books Network audience. Today, I am your host, Erica Monahan, and I have the great pleasure to introduce two historians talking about their new co-written book. The book is called Post-Imperial Possibilities, Eurasia, Eurafrica, Afro-Eurasia. It was published in 2023 by Princeton University Press by Jane Burbank and Frederick Cooper. Frederick Cooper is Professor Emeritus of History at New York University. His research has focused on 20th century Africa, empires, colonization and decolonization, and citizenship. Among his books are the 2005, Colonialism in Question, Theory, Knowledge, History, um, he also wrote, which we'll come, we'll talk about this and um to set up our conversation. He co-wrote with his co-author today, Jane Burbank, Empires in World History, Power and the Politics of Difference, which was also published by Princeton University Press in 2010. He has written Citizenship Between Empire and Nation, Remaking France and French Africa 1945 to 1960. Africa in the World, Capitalism, Empire, Nation, State. He has also written recently, Citizenship, Inequality, and Difference, Historical Perspectives, and another book that has been reissued in 2019, Africa Since 1940, The Past of the Present. His co-author, Jane Burbank, is also Professor Emerita at New York University, Her areas of research are Russian political culture, law, and empire. She has been studying Russian empire for a very long time as her bibliography displays. Her first book was Intelligentsia and Revolution, Russian Views of Bolshevism, 1917 to 1922. She followed that up with Russian Peasants Go to Court, Legal Culture in the Countryside, 1905 to 1917. In the wake of the Soviet Union, the uh, uh, Soviet Union's collapse in 1991, Jane Burbank has been among the pioneering historians in really starting to question and re-examine and re-examine questions about Russian Empire. In 1998, with co-editors David Ran, co-editor David Ranzel, she put out a volume, Imperial Russia: New Histories for the Empire. Uh, Less than a decade later, um, collaborating with Mark von Hagen, the late historian, and Anatoly Vimnouf, she published another important edited volume of essays called Russian Empire, Space, People, Power, 1700 to 1930. As I said before, she and Frederick Cooper co-authored the very important book, Empires in World History, Power and the Politics of Difference, which I know I, a- along with many others, have used to great effect in the classroom. Um, and, and now they've followed it up with this project. So without further ado, I want to come to um, our authors, and in New Books Network tradition, I would like to thank you both for being here and ask you first to tell us a little bit about how you got into history. And whoever likes to go first is welcome
2: to. Well, I can start because I think I got into history a few years before Jane did. Uh, I actually went to university, Stanford, thinking I was going to be a physics major. Uh, but I got interested in Africa and history at around the same uh, time, uh, mainly as a consequence of, of uh, the Vietnam War. This was in the 1960s uh, and an interest in in, in uh, anti-imperialism and, and, in, and in people people's mobilization uh against various forms of colonial uh rule. Uh so I started out in in, in a in a line that I've in some ways ended ended uh, up in. Uh but once I started, I really got hooked on on the history and seeing history not only as possibilities, but as constraints.
3: Uh, well I too uh ended up in history uh by a kind of accident, an accident of liberal arts education at Reed College, uh, I decided to take, um, I was interested in comparative literature and I decided to take a hard language with a great literature that would be Russian. So I started out as an undergraduate as a major in Russian literature. Um, And several years later, after uh, many 60s style adventures, um, I ended up at the Soviet Studies program at Harvard University. The uh, area studies program uh, at that time, and that allowed me to study history, economics, political science, in addition to literature and language. And in taking my um, a seminar on history, I I just discovered uh my way i just discovered that this was what i really wanted to do i wanted to work with real people um who had lived as as opposed to uh fictional ones and so after that i stayed on the straight and narrow path of studying russian history
1: or should i say the twisted path (laughs) twisted path probably better put yeah thank you okay my next question is why did you write this book this after all is something I take it of a follow up to your 2010 volume that I've mentioned, Empires in World History, um, and so I'd like to I, I'd like to ask you about how, why, and maybe when you decided to take on such a big collaborative project again.
2: Well, our publisher, Princeton, wanted us to do a sequel to the Empires book, which would have been a kind of end of of Empires book. But as we thought about it, uh, we we realized that. Uh, this would either be a, a somewhat misleading history in that it would focus on uh, on uh, a set of pathways out of empire into something else. But then there are a lot of pathways that are out of something else into into something different. So we're either going to write a history that was too narrow or a history that, that was a history of everything, which would be impossible to do. So what we decided to do was to write a, a, a history about, uh, about political projects. Getting out of empire that would uh, that would bring out some of the themes we wanted to think think about in seeing alternative pathways out of of empire, but without having obligating ourselves to write a history uh, of of how every kind of every variety of polity in the world actually came to be. So it's that kind of reflection that led us to write a book about it about post imperial projects.
3: And I should add that it really started out as an article. This book started out as an article, uh, and and even started out as a talk, a couple of uh, talks at at some universities, because both of us had worked on portions of what would become the book earlier. I had written about Eurasianism in my very first book, which came from my dissertation, uh, and Fred had been writing about uh, Eurafrica in his books. And uh, we gave a couple of talks at uh, European institutions on Eurasia and Eurafrica. We thought this worked well together. And um, one colleague suggested that uh, where was Asia in this, that we should think about Eurasia. That was all before COVID. And when we sat down during hibernating in in our New York apartment uh, after retirement, unable to travel as we had hoped Uh, we started writing this article and the article grew and grew and grew and then we realized it was a book
1: okay thank you the um okay let's get to let's get into some of the meat of the book um so the book is occupied by three projects eurasia a eurasianism your africa and Afroasia, all of which are to date unrealized. Um and and they emerge, well, at least your Africa and Afro asia emerge in a context of decolonization, um, which is very important. And as an aside, I just want to mention to all the readers out here, I was astounded at the amount of knowledge that goes into this book. I mean the the bang for one's buck in terms of um what's in here was was so eye-opening and educational, and I'm so grateful that you have done this work, kind of the payoff of having two erudite experts putting their heads together on on these topics. Um, But so please, if you could, and and you can't do it all in in the short time we have, but could you lay out for us what these three projects are? Perhaps we'll start with, and the order they come in the book, Eurasia, Eurasianism.
3: Um, Well, first we could also say that uh, Eurasia, um, is a emerged or emerged to be a vibrant project um, in a context, if not decolonization, rather imperial collapse. So uh, first in the 1920s, after the collapse of the Russian Empire uh, in, during World War I and the revolutions, um, the theory of Eurasianism was created and given a name in the 1920s, and I think its most um, uh, prominent spokespeople emerge at that time. So it's a anti it's a post imperial project, and it got a new life at the end of the book. Uh, we talk about imperialism redux. I mean, a Eurasianism redux. It got a uh, a comeback again during a period of imperial collapse. This time, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So what is it uh eurasianism i'll try to be brief uh it's a theory uh created by russian emigres uh based on um uh, interest in russia's east that preceded um, uh, world war one uh and the idea is that russia should not be oriented toward Europe as um, its intellectuals had been for the past um, 200 years, at least at that time, but rather that Russia should be thinking of itself, uh, leaders, Russian leaders, Russian intellectuals should think of themselves as bound to the peoples of the Eurasian space, that is the space to the east. Siberia, Central Asia, Turkic, Mongol people, in addition to Slavic ones. Uh, And that the whole orientation toward Europe and to be becoming part of Europe was an enormous mistake. That is the argument. The argument is that there is a natural affinity among the peoples of the great Eurasian transcontinental space, affinities based on long histories of contact and politics and culture that made them the natural, natural uh, geophysical
1: and political and cultural unit. So I'll let Fred go ahead with yeah. Afro-Asia. Yeah, thank you for that. We'll come back to that a bit. And now let's move to our um, next project, Afro-Eurasia.
2: You... Af- Af- we'll start with, with with your Africa. Correct. Um, thank you. And uh, its, its early version date, dating to the 1920s was really a project for uh, cooperation among your Euro- European colonial powers to, ex, to, to, exploit, uh, Africa together rather than, uh, as, as rivals, uh, very much in the shadow of inter-empire wars. Uh, but after the second world world war, uh, it revolved in a very different way. Uh, this was a time of crisis of legitimacy of, of European, uh, overseas rule. Uh, and from the point of view, uh, of uh, of uh, particularly of France, uh, what what France was hoping to to do was to uh, solve its problem of, of European conflict by having some kind of inter- European integration, but not give up on the fact that it had a uh, a colonial uh, empire. If France, if European France was to join with Germany, uh, Italy, the Netherlands, et cetera, to form a European uh, community, which eventually did happen, uh, France would be cutting itself in half if it excluded its African its African territories. From Africans' point of view, the 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 attraction uh, was related, but actually with the opposite implication. Uh, African leaders, French African leaders, wanted to take advantage of the crisis of legitimacy to make to turn Europe's claim on Africa into Africa's claim on Europe. Uh, that is to uh, include itself in any project for European integration and to use that as a, as a, uh, a standing point from which to claim access to European resources to make up for all the inequality at, that had been the result of, of colonial uh, exploitation. Uh, so it was it was really the perceived weakness of uh, of European powers, and particularly because this was a project that that affected above all France, uh particularly the uh, french weakness to turn it, it, it uh around into uh, a project in, w- in which in which african uh cooperation with each other uh would lead to being able to reverse uh the pattern of exploitation oh so the the, the project of your your uh of your africa dependent on the on two forms of solidarity that that leopold sangor uh, like to talk about horizontal solidarity, Africans with each other, and vertical solidarity at the relationship of Africa to France, which he would turn into using using horizontal solidarity to turn vertical solidarity into claim making on France. Now, Afro uh, Asia uh, is exactly the reverse of of that. It was to develop horizontal solidarity among states coming out of uh, colonization and and use that solidarity to, to transform fundamentally the nature of the of global political order. There were actually pre-war versions too like the League of Imperialism founded in 1927, where all sorts of movements uh, in different countries tried to combine together to combat imperialism. But after the World War II, after particularly after India became independent in 1947 and Indonesia in 1949, it became a movement of states states that wanted to assert their so- sovereignty but cooperate with each other against the uh the the still important colonial powers and against the apparent uh uh power USSR and the and the US in short to form a third world coalition but a coalition among states not among political movements now this Culminated in the Bandung Conference of 1955, and since then there have been other attempts uh, in in order to try to revive uh, Afro Asia in relationship to uh, to state sovereignty, to define economic sovereignty, to to claim economic sovereignty as well as political sovereignty. So that's the the changing forms that both these these projects had over the decades
1: thank you so much yeah i am i'm a uh, new englander so a little bit of a, a yankee you might say and i really um picked up on that you know almost an- irony of how a project that began as something exploitative was co- transformed into something to serve kind of a vision of um compensatory justice of being really included in the French imperial project, in a way that would benefit it, um, uh, so, so that that was tremendous. And I just the the your your chapter on Afro Eurasia for me one of the things I really appreciated about this book um, is how we see you show so many of these modern problems associated with multiple identities and mobilities that were already quite salient already quite identified in the 20th century people are talking about these issues and and thinking about uh, different ways to to navigate them um so I I thought that was really impressive and I encourage people to um, read this the read this um I want to now ask you so we've laid out these kind of three general projects and I want to ask you, did putin's escalation of the war with the invasion of ukraine in february 2022 when this work is already underway for you did this full-scale invasion alter your vision for the volume and if so how um the
3: the answer is uh no the vision of the volume was already set and the first draft of the novel was complete of the book was complete um in August 2021 uh actually in the in and that ended the first version of the book ended with Eurasia Redux the coming back of Eurasianism as a major theory inspiring um the uh the Imperial comeback of the Russian Federation And uh, the final chapter ended with Putin's speech in Crimea in July 2021, in which he uses a vocabulary, which I identified very much as coming from the neo eurasianist from Gumilyov in particular, and in which he articulated um, a position that could be described as Eurasianist to his uh, Crimean audience um to Tatars uh to Ukrainians uh, to Russians in Crimea where he said you're all part of the Russian homeland you should be feel yourselves part of the Russian homeland um and he really laid out the sort of vision of a uh, Crimea incorporated into into uh into Russia but with this ideology of um a multi Uh, multi-ethnic base uh, of peoples who should belong to Russia. So that was how the first draft of the book ended with um, Eurasia making an imperial comeback. Uh, And then um, uh, uh, for those of you in the audience who know Russian historians, my great friend Marina McGilder um, had read this first draft of the book and she advised me to do some more work on the recent Eurasianism. So for the next few months, um, I had been reading a lot about Eurasianism in Russia in the 1990s, 1990s. And I had been reading Alexander uh, Dugan's textbook, published in 1997, under the auspices of the Russian military, uh, a book that lays out the position uh for Russia to become a Eurasian power um and to expand uh over the whole Eurasian space and as he says eventually the world um and also takes a very explicit uh, position on Ukraine saying that Ukraine must be part of Russia once again so I had been reading all this Dugan material and that meant that when uh Putin declared war in February 2022, um, I heard Eurasianism all over his um, speech that others have struggled so much to understand. And so what changed in the book was that we, of course, rewrote the introduction, (laughs) rewrote the introduction to include um, the crisis that had been opened up, the world crisis that had been opened up by, by the war and by this explicit explicit um, call for a battle against uh, Europe on the part of and the United States on the part of Russia and a uh, Putin's um, Putin's insistence that small states did not have right their right to determine their own sovereign course uh, and include of course it changed the end of the book to the extent that we covered um the first year of the war on Ukraine uh and the various currents countercurrents that the war released but overall in terms of the argument of the book it, it did not change
1: okay um thank you yeah because I in the introduction of the book, for example, you so poignantly feature the remarks of the Kenyan ambassador Martin kimani um on in the wake of Putin's um angry arguments against Ukraine's existence. And that made me think um, that it all, um, that in that moment really ties together nicely. Maybe what does Kim, what did Kimani have to say to the UN?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Well, his argument was that uh, Africa had decolonized, that it had decolonized into uh, a whole group of separate states, and that they had ever since respected each other's borders. So his, his argument was addressed to Russia's violation of the sovereignty of, of Ukraine in the invasion of, Feb, of, Feb, of, of February 2022. Uh, so uh, he, he basically acknowledged that had been set artificially by colonization, not in relationship to any particular patterns of African culture, but that Africans had learned to live with that. Uh, and that there have been, and he's, he was quite right about this, relatively few uh, conflicts in Africa over borders, and relatively few cases of one uh, state being absorbed into another, one state seceding uh, from another. Now, up to that point, everything he said was 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 quite accurate, and a very a very powerful argument uh, about whatever one's history, that sovereignty really matters and should be protected. Uh, what he uh, did not address, and, and probably could not have addressed in, in his remarks to the uh, to the Security Council, uh, what was that the uh, ma- making uh, the the uh, borders of sovereign states sacrosanct, the possibilities of of uh, of acting together in a wider pattern, pan African or or indeed uh, Afro Asian. Uh, was was more difficult uh, and and that the the uh, the price of uh, a system based on uh, the, the the apparently inviolable so- sovereignty uh, of each nation state uh, was that mechanisms across uh, these boundaries were were hard to uh, institutionalize. M- most important of which uh, was that the inequality, between the ex-colonial and the ex-colonized states uh, became a a matter of concern within each state rather than uh, for a a global community uh, as a whole. So European powers in freeing, one might say, uh, their states from colonial rule, they also freed themselves from any obligation to the people of those those states for uh, economic uh, and social uh, progress. Uh, those states could ask for foreign aid, but they were not in a uh, institutional position uh, to make to make to make claims. So it's a two sided process. On the one hand, uh, recognition of sovereignty is a very important way for pe- for people uh, to uh, protect themselves. Uh, yet the making sovereignty into an into an absolute uh, make makes uh, it more difficult to, to address problems that exist. On a global scale across all these divisions?
1: Thank you. Yeah, indeed. One of the kind of looming questions, although um, Kimani's marked, remarks do strike so poignantly as a very pragmatic way forward that there can be a statute, you know, that there should at some level, the way I read it at least, and um, sh- should be a statute of limitations on grievance, <laughs> if that isn't too blunt a way of putting it. But um, uh, But what threads do we kind of from the past do we take forward and what threads do we leave behind for the sake of uh, peaceably functioning in the world? Just one of, you know, many threads that this book will, you know, leave me thinking about for a while to come. Um, to switch to switch gears, I wanted to ask, um, uh, 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 to switch gears, another thing I've been thinking about is, um, among historians of the Russian Empire, Russia and the Soviet Union, Putin's invasion has forced a real reckoning, and many of us have asked, um, were we too easy on empire? Where did we go wrong? Did we go wrong in writing this history? Um, were we too casual casual in assimilating Russo-centric assertions of hegemony and spheres of influence, um, et cetera? Uh, even now, for example, as I read um, about Eurasianism, uh, um, kind of born from a critique of imperialist Western culture, I see um, old wine in new bottles that that, that imposes a sort of assumed imperialism on the East, and maybe we'll talk more about that. But um, in terms of, to come back to this, this question of reckoning with how we have written the history of Russian Empire? Did we go too easy on empire? Um, You know, I've wondered if perhaps the part of the problem was that in academia, one doesn't find many champions of the nation state, given the history of the 20th century. It's quite understandable. And so in reading this book, uh, we can, on the one hand, it it offers some hope um, or recognition, at least, uh, that many people have been aware of these tensions and contradictories and varieties of ways of organizing. I, I really love the way you talk about solidarities, vertical, horizontal um and that and yet and yet on the other hand, um, maybe less hopeful, these projects that have been have been, unrealized. And you even write, quote, there are false starts in a world of national states, exploitative economic structures, and unredeemable histories of racial prejudice, end quote. Um, And so this, one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, who is this book for? Is it for historians? Is it for political scientists? Um, Are there policy implications in it? And just maybe one even more word of um, context in terms of where I, I I am coming from, I um I had the great opportunity to uh, live in Kenya for a while after um, being an undergraduate, and returned in 2022 and um, got to reconnect with some of my old friends there, and um, in conversations with better uh, you know a better educated um, friend, I I was. Um, very aware of hearing him strike quite anti-Western notes that echoed some of the Russian propaganda. And it and now as we're watching Russia's efforts to kind of turn the propaganda tide um, in a global, in the global South, um, the world majority, what Putin is calling it, it seems that the things you're talking about are, are so important. Well, you've
3: I, got a lot in that. Question. I know I,
1: <laughs> that's several questions.
3: Um uh let me start uh, a bit with the um uh Russian uh side of things. Um and well uh, and also with um the the nation state issue. When we actually when Fred and I were in graduate school, um nation-state was everywhere. Um I mean the, the whole story of history was supposed to be imperial empires leading to nation states. And the theorists of the nation state um, were very dominant, even as we were um, in the 1970s and 1980s, especially uh, during the time of kind of a weakening of the Soviet Union, Um, nationalism and the the theory of nation and when nation states get formed and uh, so on. This was very much in the wind and very prominent in theory. Uh, in, in theories, histori- historians' theories. So, our first book, um, Empires in World History, really tried to take this on to show that um, first there was not a single one trajectory for state forms in this world. There were many of them. Um, That empires had been the most predominant, most dominant form of uh, political organization throughout world history everywhere, but also that there were many different kinds of empires. That was a major argument of the first book. Empire was not one thing and nation state, a term that actually appeared in the mid 20th century, was also not one thing that these were not the only state forms. So that's part of my answer. I'll return briefly to Russia and then Fred, I'm sure, wants to take this up, the many questions you posed. But it seemed somehow that on this issue of empire, Russia got off the hook. Um, I mean, I've been working on imperial Russia for decades now. We had many uh, historians dedicated to looking at imperial Russia, um, and to the Soviet Union as um a multinational, multi-ethnic kind of state. And these concerns were not really, um in most many cases normative, or at least not explicitly normative. Um there were some histories of nations within the Soviet Union which really had an undercurrent of defense of uh, ethnic groups against Soviet imperialism. But there was also a strong tendency, I believe, and I think I was a part of this um, starting in um, the late 1980s to think back on Imperial Russia and simply wonder, how did it work? How did it work without a normative judgment about uh, politics? Uh, And to some extent that Um, query about how did it work, extend it to the Soviet Union. At the same time, when there was a deep interest in colonialism and empire uh, in the 1980s and 1930s in the rest of the world, the Soviet Union would get a little off the hook. In other words, most books concerning imperial colonialism were about the first and third world not the Second World, and uh, Eurasianism in some ways is the per- perfect example of this: um, the Soviet Union getting off the hook of being an empire, uh, because Eurasianism, beginning in the nineteen twenties when Trepitskoy theorized it, was an anti-imperial ideology. It's was against European empire, and Trepitskoy's arguments about why Russia should turn to the east depended on his sense that European imperialism was wrecking the world. Trying to catch up with Europe was a big mistake. It was dividing people within countries, um, and that Russia had an affinity with the peoples to the east. And his great work, which I hope everyone should read, 1920 work, Europe and Humanity, the title itself gives you an idea of how he was arguing. Humanity was one thing. Europe was imperial in another. And he ends this book with a call for a revolution of people around the world um, uh, against Europeans. He was not pro-Soviet. But uh, this notion that whatever came next in Russia was against empire and 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 uh, anti-imperial stuck very strongly and could be articulated um, by Soviet leaders themselves. And what's different with uh, Eurasianism in the late 1980s and early 1990s, is that on the one hand, uh, empire can be seen, empire itself can be seen as a positive concept. That's what Dugan is saying. He's Alexander Dugan is saying. Russians are imperial people. they we are Empire. Empire is the correct form. And he um, he completely dismisses the idea of the nation the state. But at the other hand, on the other hand, Dugan's ideology is anti-Europe anti-west and and uh, and peel and appeals to, again, a decolonizing rhetoric. Uh, it retains this anti-imperial edge, as, and keeps it, and uh, the term Empire seems to stick with the Western empires, the colonial em- empires and the United States as an empire. But positively, um, Russia as an imperial formation is defending, according to this theory, um, itself against an assertive, aggressive Western uh, world. So we see in, in this, in Eurasianism, we can see how, once again, Russia positions itself as defending the exploited of the earth against the uh, aggressive Western uh,
1: imperialists. Thank you. And and which is exactly kind of the thread I was hearing from my friend in Kenya, which I think is a nice segue into Fred talking, speaking to this.
2: Yes, I'm, I'm glad you brought up so soon, Ambassador uh, Kimani's uh, address to the Security Council in, uh, in 2022. Uh, and our, we, it appears on page two of our book. Uh, so we gave it such prominence because it, it points to the fundamental uh, ambiguity of the concept of, of nation state. He was defending sovereignty uh, against an imperialist aggression, and it does come out of an African experience of, of liberation uh from uh colonial rule some some decades uh earlier and he sees the relationship of that uh to uh what's gone on uh uh, ever ever since uh but it also runs into the uh the unsaid in his intervention uh which which is that the the nation-state system has proved inadequate uh for overcoming the inequality that that uh that history has has uh has produced uh, So that uh that kind of uh uh ambivalence is, some, is something we do want our readers to uh to 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 see uh so in a sense our uh, bo- both uh the uh Eurasian parts of the book and the and the and the uh the Afro-African and the Afro-Asian parts of uh, of the book are all addressing the question of after empire what all all these movements were were uh, extremely critical, uh, of, uh, predict, of, uh, empire, particularly Western European, uh, uh, empire. Uh, but they posed the question of, of what are, what could come, uh, next. Uh, and it's important to remember that the, uh, the, both the movements, uh, both the Afro, your African and the Afro Asian movements were, were, alive and and indeed at their height of strength in the 1950s. Uh, So any kind of uh, narrative of of world history that tries to to assume that you're going for empire to nation state in some kind of trans-historical process, maybe from the the, the Westphalia Treaties of 1648 or the French Revolution of 1789, uh, or maybe it's the the invocation of of self-determination in the peace talks after world war 1 in 1919 all all these assumptions of a linear trajectory uh, are inadequate and that, that people were search, were search were searching for other ways of organizing a post-imperial future uh as as late as as the second half of the of the 20th century uh and I, that is in a in, in a in effect the, the, the pathos of this book the trying to show the, imp- the importance of, of these imaginaries and the constraints on what to do with them. The uh, Eurasian one becomes perverted into, in, into a call for reconstituting empire. The, o- the other two uh, are uh, are constrained uh, by the remaining power of the uh, of the North American and Western European state econ- their economic power their their continued domination of of international institutions uh which make it very difficult for the the all the alternatives uh to to come forth and the nations the nation state uh, has not proven to to be uh a a clear stepping stone uh to uh a more egalitarian uh future so the the question that was that uh both the 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 the, the your the Afro Asian uh, uh, movement raised the question of, wh- of whether, by com- the combined forces of, of of states acting together, could fundamentally change the, the the order. And that was a big attempt in the in the nineteen seventies under the the name of new international economic order, uh, which was shot down uh by uh the major powers and never in the first world and never got the backing of the second world in the in the night in the 1970s uh the euro african politics uh was an attempt to to bring about change by seeing by the the strategy of uh, of maintaining relations to take an unequal relationship a vertical relationship to use sangora's language uh, and to turn it around to make it work in the opposite direction from from what uh, what it, it it had, and the failure of uh, of that uh, project uh, has let left uh, the African countries that were involved uh, in it in a in a, in a position uh, of, uh, uh, in, of being unable to uh, overcome the obstacles to their uh, uh, assertion. Of uh, their, their desires for economic uh, progress, and in some ways, the continued uh, arguments, the, the continued uh, anti-colonialism uh, that you that you see among African youth, 60 years after the formal end of, of colonization, reflects frustration uh, with the form that decolonization has actually taken, with its act- with the limitations uh, that its the its form has taken that has not enabled it to be that has not ena- enabled, uh Africans to be in the position to make effective the claims they had on the resources they need to improve the lives of most people on the continent.
1: Thank you. I wanna um ask you to maybe talk about Leopold Senghor a little bit more. He's an important figure in your discussion of your Africa, um who a very sympathetic figure. Who nonetheless goes on to um, be the president of Senegal and maintain power for a quarter of a century thereabouts, um, creating a, a single-party state. And you mentioned, oh, this was something. This was one of Lenin's ideas <laughs> that, that that took root. And and so I I wanted to ask you, tell us a little bit more about him. Does he remain a sympathetic character for you? And and what might it say about um, the strongman? politics of of africa that you talk about so um it, it, that that is kind of not central to your book it's in but it's in the background when you talk about the or what or is it the organization of african unity kind of cynic, cynic, uh, cynically referred to as a mutual protection society for strongman leaders and and i just so i wanted to ask you maybe to talk about Sangor a little bit as shedding light on some of the trends that are there in this history you've
2: told. Well Sangor is a, as a in a way a tragic figure uh that he became what he warned against. Uh, Senghor uh understood the risks of confining politics to territorial boundaries. And one of the uh, things he hoped for in having uh a a layered Approach to sovereignty rather than an absolutist approach to sovereignty, uh, was that was was that rights could be guaranteed at a, at a higher level of the polity than that in which politicians were go, were were going after each each other's throats. Uh, so he he thought that his vision of of a few, of a Euro African future was that each territory would would have a uh, executive and a legislature. There would be an African federation, which would be his expression of horizontal solidarity of of, uh, of Africans this would also be institutionalized with an executive and a legislature and the third la- la- layer would be what used to be the french empire and would become a confederation of equal uh states one of which was the african federation uh when this did not come to pass what what sangor was left with was the, the bottom of those three layers only and that is senegal as a, as a sovereign uh national state uh and what uh and sangor became a prime actor in exactly the kind of politics that he that he feared there would be a zero-sum struggle for power that the one of the few resources that senegal would have would be its sovereignty its ability to control uh relations between the territory and the outside world and sangor leapt he, he didn't fall into the trap he leapt into it uh and, beca- and became became the, the kind of uh, practitioner of zero sum politics in Senegal that he that he had feared uh, would happen uh, if that was the if that was the only form in which sovereignty could could take. Uh, so uh, two years after he became president of an in, of independent uh, Senegal, he not only fired his uh, his leading uh, uh, ally in the political struggles up until that, that point, Mamadou ja. Uh, but put him in prison, uh, where he stayed for over over a decade. And he he abolished multiple uh, parties and be, and became uh, a single party uh, uh, ruler. He repented of that. He eventually did reinstate multiple multipartyism. And unlike many of his fellow leaders of 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 uh, of Africa, he did he did in 1980 take an honorable uh, retirement. But he stayed way too long in in in, in power, uh, and repressed the uh, and repressed uh, dissent. So the the critiques of 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 him are are fully uh, uh, of of what he did in power. I think are, are entirely uh, justified. Uh, what re- what remains it, it is his own understanding that he elaborated before he came to power over over the types of uh, over the different options. Different political possibilities that it, that existed, and the dangers uh, of the one that he that he ended up uh, with. So I think thinking of thinking about Sangor as political theorist, and I think his notions of horizontal and vertical solidarity and the relationship between the two is an insight that is important not only for for his own political movements but for the world in general. We are dealing with a relationship of political of. Vertical and horizontal solidarities in our politics all the time, and we need to think clearly about their implications. I think Sangor gives us an important lesson in political theory for that, and I think the effort that he tried to make, the, his his effort at political imagination, uh, is is something that's extremely Im- important. Uh, but none but none of it belittles uh, the 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 fact that uh, as uh, the leader of a territorially defined uh, state. Uh, he uh engaged in the in the some in the same practices that many of his fellow uh leaders uh did which which were which were authoritarian
1: thank you the book gives a lot of attention to s- space and and talks about territory um one question I wanted to ask deals with the Russian Empire and um I wanted to ask in your view did the Russian Empire fail at the periphery At the periphery, Um, you talk about the uh, revolt in Central Asia in 1916. And I think uh, on page 68, I noticed you wrote, the empire had indeed collapsed, imploding on itself when Central Asians rebelled against Russian settlers in 1916. And um, yeah, so in terms of space and the collapse of the Russian empire, did the empire fail at the periphery? so right now we're talking about um the Russian Empire
3: of uh the Romanovs um and uh and it's uh it's end in uh 1917 um I think the the uh it's it would be too strong to say that the Empire collapsed because of rebellion at the peripheries rather that it's uh embeddedness in a world system of empires uh which which, took, um, which themselves exploded in World War I was the critical factor. Because if we look at the um, uh, ambitions and the organization of people um, in the Russian Empire in the early 20th century, it's not clear that um, peoples at the borders had either the capacity or the wish to bring the whole empire down. After all, it was an empire, rebellion, even against Russian settlers in uh, Central Asia. It wasn't necessarily a rebellion for an independent state of some type. So um, what I would emphasize in terms of the imperial collapse was the system of empires, rival empires that failed to order the world and indeed um, broke open uh, with World War One, which then then um exploded the deals that kept the Russian Empire together um the and maybe here the one-man uh leadership uh uh role comes into play as we know Nicholas II made many very bad decisions in the years leading to the war and probably um, one of the worst one was, ones was his war with Japan, which the empire lost, essentially weakening and shaking up the system, and then giving voice to people in uh, the empire for more autonomy, more cultural autonomy, more rights uh, within the empire itself. But in, to my mind, those were the kinds of struggles that most of the people if they were involved in them at all. Most of the people who were non-Russian in the empire were concerned and their leaders, their leaders if they had uh, political positions were concerned more um, with uh, autonomy, cultural autonomy or various political projects, socialism, uh, than with actually the defeat of the empire per se. Um, Drafting Muslim soldiers was a big step in bringing about the weakness of the russian empire the persecution of ukrainians from and ukrainian language for the last 50 years before the war was also part of the configuration of uh power that allowed um the um the uh le- political leaders to attack uh the romanovs in 1917 but we have to remember that the most probably the most important event of uh, bringing down the Russian empire was the February revolution, 1917, when fundamentally the political elite deserted Romanovs, but they deserted them for many diff- with many different goals and not necessarily uh, that of a reconfiguration of independent states. That on the other hand was exactly what happened in 1991 that once again, when the uh, empire was failing to fulfill the desires of its leaders, its um, imperial the elites, elites from many different um, parts of the Soviet Union, when we see t- tremendous discontent on the part of people in Soviet elites with their position in the world, their level of live, their standard of living, uh, and so on, that in the 19 1990 1991 when the empire came back, we apart uh, we do see then elites well positioned in the 14 other republics of uh of the soviet union then had an ideology a uh, nation state ideology which they could mobilize uh, to take the empire apart thank you yeah
1: indeed such a such a complex um such a both times in 1917 and 1991, such a complex phenomenon. The um, so I want to next ask you about. Um. Well, let's see. So, in you you talk about in your book how the um wealth inequality in the world today is as stark as it was in the early 20th century um, on the verge of the Russian Revolution, which you were just talking about. And a, a common thread that that I see in the movements of um, your Africa and Afro-Asia is this explicit attention to and concern for um, hierarchical relations, transmission relations between high and low. And, for the Eurasianists too, with respect to culture, um, let me not exclude it, although I kind of read Eurasianism as a different phenomenon than these other two projects, a less sympathetic one to be frank. Um, but at any at any rate, um so the so we you're really attentive to these relations between high and low, the rich and poor, enfranchised and disenfranchised, donor and receiver. Um uh and <laughs> And yet then you'd kind of have this story more or less where if these movements from the colonized might be gaining some traction, the they're pretty much with the with the tenure of Reagan and Margaret Thatcher comes in on the global, global scene, a kind of neoliberalism that kills whatever traction these movements may have had potential to be gaining. Maybe I'm putting it too bluntly. Um, so I wanted to maybe ask you, is that is that a fair assessment? Um, could you say a little bit more about that? And also, I want to ask the question, even as you write, these are unrealized projects. Um, are there kernels of success that you can identify in them?
2: Well, the kernel of, su- of success, to take up your last part of the question, uh, is actually the European Union, uh, which, which is a model of layered sovereignty. Uh, it is not a model of, of how to to deal with the fundamental inequalities between Europe and the rest of the world but within Europe for uh for countries that are actually unequal in terms of their uh economic stature the the, the difference between uh between Portugal and Germany is a considerable one uh but it is a it is a structure that recognizes the sovereignty of of the component states but has supranational st- structures. Uh, and an idea of Europe that is supposed to uh, transcend that. Now that's problematic in in, in more ways than uh, than than one. Not least of which is the idea that uh, the you should build a wall around the around the whole thing and keep everybody else out, which which many people within the the union seem to be uh, promoting. But nonetheless, there is a possibility that we can that of taking a less than absolutist view of sovereignty and see that functions can be divided uh, at different levels and then institutions including including courts can be developed at, a, at, a, uh, at the level of a, of a union uh, rather than within individual national states. Uh, now this model has has, uh, has uh, attracted interest uh, elsewhere, not, not least in the uh, the idea of a Eurasian, uh, union that that uh, appeared within the ex-Soviet uh, bloc. Uh, uh, but significantly, when the Organization of African Unity changed its name to African Union, it was opening the possibility that something like this could, could happen. Now, it hasn't. And in some ways, there are steps that have been taken in, in the opposite dir- direction. For example, there was a, uh, a, organization, a cooperative organization of West African states, uh, known by its its abbreviation of, of ECOWAS, uh, from which three states just uh, seceded: uh, Mali, Niger, and and uh, and Burkina Faso. Uh, and so that that I think is a blow to the possibility of developing, if not on a Pan African scale, at least on a on a on a on a regional scale, some kind of supranational organization with some institutional. Force to it. So, in the in that in that sense, there are possibilities that remain. So too, despite Reagan and Thatcher's ability uh, to to stop uh, the movement towards a new international economic order in 1981, uh, and by no and Mitt, Reagan and Thatcher were by no means alone in, do, in in doing doing that. Certainly, corporate interests were very strong in opposing the NIEO, uh, but it it uh it's not the last we've heard of such demands. at the 2022 climate conference, there was a uh, attempt to orga- to organize uh a on the part on the part of the poorer states uh claims on the richer ones uh that they should pay reparations for the harm that, that it was they after all who produced most of the pollutants that are causing glo- global uh warming uh and that they and that poorer states, needed help to overcome the the damages to to their uh, environments. Uh that uh argument received nominal uh support from other parts from the richer parts of the world but it remains to be seen whether there'll be any actual substance uh to it. So the arg- the arguments that came out of uh of Afro-Asian movements for for example including the the movement for the Uh, New international economic order of the 1970s. Those arguments have not gone away, nor has the institutional possibility that the that the European Union represents uh, disappeared. It's a troubled body, but to be to be sure, uh, but in some ways it's shown more strength uh, in the recent crisis than than it had had before. Uh, So uh, it it's it's not as if the possibilities that we talk about are, are extinguished from the realm of of. Of, of political imagination or, around the world the pro, the problem is 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 a, is above all a structural one uh, and that the uh the division of the of the world into nearly 200 uh states uh has been very much to the to the advantage of of global capitalism uh and that it that attempts to uh to uh control uh to limit uh, the, the powers of multinational corporations and international financial institutions; uh, these remain in, in in place, and it's and it's these remain possibilities. Uh, and the the uh, extinction of the communist option should actually give give rise to uh, to more imaginative forms uh, of how to how to deal with a world that the with, with a world that uh, provides measures of economic and political. Uh, liberty uh with with without leading to the extremes uh, of inequality that the present structures uh provide
1: thank you Jane would you like to add anything anything to that we are I I see that we are coming to the end of our time so I'm gonna need to let you go um before I do I and and I will come back to you Jane I want um Thank you for this example of the EU. I mean, um, as a institution of layered sovereignty, troubled it may be, though I was given great hope. I'm sitting here in Germany where last month, thousands and thousands, if not millions, if not a million Germans went out in the street to demonstrate against this, um, what's seen as a rise in far-right politics with the AF- AFD. Um, And I found that a very hopeful moment of, you know, very normal people um, showing that they were committed to a different path and not a path of far right politics at all. Um, And also along this, you bring up this whole other um, theme. It's in your book a lot. It's it's plays a role in your book of global corporations and what role they've played in this. And so I want to give a shout out to listeners that um, to listen to an interview um, that I did on the History Ex-Silo podcast with Philip Stern and, and Quinn Slobodian about their books, Crack Up Capitalism and Empire, Inc., giving a real kind of long durée perspective on some of the issues that, um, you know, manifest and are at play in, uh, in post-imperial possibilities. Um, before I go, I would like to ask you, um, I would like to thank you so much for your time and ask you our traditional NBN finishing question, which is, what are you working on next, um, either individually or together?
3: Um, well, let me start. Uh, you did ask me if I wanted to add <laughs> to on the last question. Um, and uh, one thing I'd like to uh, mention is um, one of the themes of our book is a political imagination. And uh, we're talking about the political imagination of people who created these uh, three projects. But also political imagination is a kind of a sticky thing. And um, I think we see uh, the long durée of uh, empire and colonial imaginaries in current politics today. So the romanticization, uh, by Africans, some Africans recently of Russia coming in and replacing France as, as a power to help them out is an example of, um, an imaginary, uh, about great powers that can help smaller countries. Um, it can be a very deceptive uh, imaginary. And uh, in that line, my the point I'd like to uh, bring out here is in the latest versions of Russian Empire, Eurasianist versions, uh, they are calls, an appealing slogan for many people, many elites in politics has been a multipolar versus a unipolar world. But let's focus on that word, multipolar unipolar, it assumes that there are poles. It's not a, a slogan that means that small sovereign states have rights. It's a slogan that says there will be poles. Russia is a pole, Washington DC is a pole, etc. So I think we need to be very careful of falling for a kind of romantic romantic interpretation of this multipolar view. It is one that once again says great powers decide all for others. So next project. Now, my next next project, I'm going back to the project I've been working on for over 10 years. Um, It's uh, located in late Imperial Russia and in uh, the Kazan province. And it's about law and bureaucrats and policemen. and how it is that Russian sovereignty, the sovereignty of the state is carried out by the intermediaries of the legal and law enforcement system. So in my career, I figure I've written one book primarily on intellectuals, my first one, the next one primarily about peasants. And this one is going to be primarily about bureaucrats. Um, And I hope I've got enough information to to finish this book. from my study um outside russia unfortunately
1: oh well i do too and i look, very much look forward to reading it i think it's a terrific approach as, especially as people talk about maybe an a post-putin alternative being the technocratic state so we we do well to focus on those um bureaucratic actors
2: fred how about you well i don't have an archival uh monographic type project that i that i wanted to 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 do uh i think now that uh that i'm years in, in into retirement uh uh i'm i'm content to uh pursue a mode of you might call reflective and and uh to, to think more about some issues that i've written about and people ask me to revisit revisit some of the themes that i've uh worked on in the past or i was just just asked to uh, to go back to some of my earlier work on on labor history and and uh, and uh, and write about in in uh, in a way that 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 might interest some uh, trade unionists who are thinking of uh, precedents outside of the European field for for how to talk about uh, issues in in labor history and similarly on uh, on uh, some of my past work. Uh, particularly my book colonialism in question that was published in 2005 uh uh two different uh project people two different people have asked me to reflect back on 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 that uh uh f- from a more recent vantage point so I I think I'll do a, m- a number of uh of exercises like 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 that uh and uh and try to maintain a a reflective view uh on some of the major issues in in historical and political uh Scholarship that that have interested me over the years.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, Judging from your all of your works and so far, the contributions that you both have made individually and collectively have been tremendous. I encourage all of our readers to, um, if you've appreciated today's conversation, pick up a copy of Post Imperial Possibilities. There is much, much to learn in here that we didn't um, even get to. And um, Jane and Fred, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thank you for having us uh, giving us this opportunity bye- bye